good evening, good morrow, and good morning. My name is Mikhail Moonstrung, and I'm excited. I'm excited because I get to bring and perform another one of my favorite things to do on this channel, and that's to, to read or to give you my opinion of what I'm reading. Uh, this time in the series, last time we read The Emerald Tablets, which deeply transformative i can be grateful to say that i am taking a slightly different approach than those because it was moving as hell reading those tablets so this time we're going to take a crack at the bhagavad gita but this time rather than read it directly as it is i'm going to do an interpretive reading i'm going to do a retelling or storytelling not in my own way as to change any of the content no but just to give my emotional connotation and retelling in a certain way of my experience with the Bhagavad Gita. So in other words, I'm going to tell you the Bhagavad Gita as I not just remember it, but am reading it. I have it in front of me and we'll be pulling from it as a resource. And from that, using that to guide the story to tell you. A lot of times when we read stories that come from other, other cultures, it can be confusing or full of references that we don't necessarily understand or that understanding would require more research. And I encourage everyone to do that and to read the Bhagavad Gita as it is. I believe that's actually the name of the book. Yes, it is. The Bhagavad Gita as it is. It is an incredible read. It is deeply transformative. And it is a part of a of a whole story. It's not the entire story. It is just one part of it. And I can say that in listening to and reading this small part, I was transformed and moved in a way that gave me perspective in places I didn't have perspective. It helped me understand the parts in my life that were unbalanced. And I don't do this as a advertisement to the Bhagavad Gita, but just to say that in all the texts that we read and all of the importance of wisdom that we delve through to develop ourselves, to discover ourselves. It's important to keep a wide eye and to look far, to seek farther. And as I have found the Bhagavad Gita, I tell you that there is wisdom here, that there is deep truth to the nature of God, to the nature of all, to the world around us and our position within it. The Bhagavad Gita gives such clear and explicit detail as far as what you need to do and how you need to act that I can really appreciate that in, in a space where there is a lot of vagueness and in personal interpretation, which can lead you into confusion. The Bhagavad Gita is pretty clear. It, it, gives, it gives you some pretty, pretty surefire things to play into your experimentation, to bring into your practice or to test, to see how it fits. Now, as we go, I want to remind that in all spaces, I give full full credit and full credence to Krishna, to the author of the Bhagavad Gita, to the inspiration to the Bhagavad Gita, and to the families and households of people that have kept this story, that have kept this book, this belief, this tale of time alive, who have guarded it and kept it. All praise and all salute goes to you. And that as we read it, these are my interpretations. This is my retelling. And then I encourage at the base of everything, that as we go through this series, you pick up a copy of the book yourself, follow along, and see how well my interpretation may meet yours. 
or compare it to what you read in the book. I would say that in the book, it's wonderful because it gives you two parts. There's a highlighted text, which is effectively the Bhagavad Gita. And then there's so much explanatory information that follows right after to basically give you the, the not what I'm going to give you, because <laughs> that would be far more detail. But no, it just gives you a very detailed explanation of what was going on. Who are they referencing? What are they talking about? And it makes the Bhagavad Gita as it is incredibly accessible. So as we start this, I just want to say, hey, you should get a copy of this. But if not, no worries. Sit back, relax, and my long, lengthy intro to this episode is over. Okay, so as we begin, a little bit of background. In the Bhagavad Gita, there are two warring families, two warring clans. In and on both sides of that are massive amounts of incredibly strong people. Well-off warriors, wise kings, grandfathers, leaders of their clan. These two families that set the scene are at war. They have decided to come into conflict for one another. And in this conflict, we find an individual called Krishna and another individual called Arjuna. Now, Krishna is given the title as living embodiment of Christ, or the the Krishna consciousness, the Christ consciousness. In the story, this is a character just like Jesus, as depicted, just like Thoth. This is a mercurial, intermediary type figure who is given the embodiment. Mercurial may not be the right word, but given the embodiment of the divine personality or the divine Godhead. In other words, this is God on earth. In Psalm TLDR, this is God on earth. This character, acknowledged and recognized by both families, is on one side. And his chariot is being drawn by an individual called Arjuna. Now, Arjuna is, let's call him assistant to the king. Assistant to the Lord of the clan. And he's an incredible archer. Arjuna is, is is known for many feats. But in this particular feat, he is beside Krishna. And Krishna, as his friend, is pulling his chariot. The incarnation of God pulls the chariot of Arjuna, the mighty archer. And as Arjuna begins to look at these two mighty Size. He looks to his king and he looks to Krishna and he, he says, Krishna, I need you to take me, take me down, take me through into these, these two people that I may see the individuals who are fighting, that I may see those who have gathered around. And he says, okay. And Krishna takes off and he looks and he, they, they, they ride down through the middle of these two gathering clans, these two warring folks and they, and they and they go through and they list all of the people that are there now in that space you see arjuna he's looking and he is distraught because as he looks he sees that not only does he see these great warriors but he also sees his family he sees that he is positioned not only between his family but his king his friends there are those he has known since birth who have trained and taught him And yet all still, he hears the sounds of war calling on all sides. 
As the sounds of war begin, as the horns are blown, Lord Krishna himself blows his horn, and Arjuna follows. And so all around, the space takes heat. It takes roar. It takes fire. The war is now. The conflict is about to be done. The apex of the moment is right now. Now, in the presence of Bhishma, Drona, and all other chieftains of the world, the Lord said, Just behold, Partha, all the Kurthras are assembled here. Everyone gathered this battle. And Arjuna could see within the mists of the armies of both parties his father grandfathers, teachers, maternal uncles, brothers, sons, grandsons, and friends, also his fathers-in-law and well-wishers. Why? He could see everyone. This was the trigger to his, his, his not falling, but to his collapse, to his full witness to what was about to happen. Arjuna says, My dear Krishna, seeing my friends and my family before me in such a spirit, I feel the limbs in my body quivering and my mouth drying up. My body is trembling, my hair is standing on end, my bow, this mighty bow is falling from my hand and my skin is burning. I am now unable to stand here any longer. I am forgetting myself and my mind is reeling. I only see misfortune, Krishna, mighty killer of the forces of evil. I do not see how any good can come from the killing of my own family, of my own brothers, nor can I desire, victory in this. What use is this going to be to a kingdom or happiness in life itself if we must lay our blades against family on the battlefield? These who have stood beside me, I am now supposed to be ready to kill them, to lay myself against them? Surely this act, surely taking on this act of falling against my family would be better for me to stop, to do no more, for me to lay my bow down, nay, throw it to the ground and allow their blades to fall upon me. Would this not be better than to ride my blade against them? Now Krishna, looking at Arjuna and hearing and seeing his pain, Seeing that which broke him, which called him to be full of these, this energy, his eyes full of tears, Krishna then spoke. Oh my Arjuna, how have these impurities come to you? Why are these things so heavy upon your mind? Why they are not at all befitting a man who knows the value of life. They lead not to higher planets of the mind, but to infamy. Krishna looks at Arjuna, who is hurting, looks into him, through him to see him, and speaks. He says, do not yield to this fear. Do not yield to this quiver which takes your body. It does not become you. Give up this weakness of your heart and arise. Arjuna said, God, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to counterattack with arrows in battle men who are worthy of my worship? How am I to come against these whose aim, 
whose accuracy, whose words are so true. Why, it would be better to live in this world begging than to cost the lives of these great men who have contributed so much to our our well-being. I am confused in my duty, and I've lost my ability to delineate. Right now, weakness falls upon me, and in this condition, I'm asking you to tell me, what is? what do I need? I am your disciple. I stand beside you in this battle and in all things, Krishna. I am yours. What do I do? I do not know how to do this. I, can't, I, I don't know how to drive this grief from me. And if I know, I, I, I don't know what to do next. Help me. I will not fight. Lord Krishna, I cannot. And with that, Arjuna fell. <laughs> you are so funny, my son, child. Krishna smiled. And with that smile, all things seemed to stop and pause within the world. While speaking learned words, you are mourning for what is not worthy of grief. For those who are wise lament neither for the living nor for the dead. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all of these kings, nor in the future will any of us ever cease to be. As the embodied soul passes in this body from boyhood to youth and old age, the soul will rise into another body at death. Sober persons should not be bewildered by such change. Look and see that as all things change throughout time in appearance and disappearance, they are like the winter and summer seasons. They arise from a sense of perception. And one must learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. Why, best among men, Arjuna, is the person who is not disturbed by happiness or distress, but is steady in both, and certainly eligible for this liberation. You know this, my son. Lift your head and see. Those who are seers of truth have have concluded that the non-existence of this material body, there is no endurance. Why, the body must end. It must die. It belongs to the earth. But of the soul, there is no change. Why, the students of wise and the evolved mind have seen, and they have concluded this by studying the nature of both things. That which pervades the entire body, you should know to be indestructible. Why, no one can destroy that imperishable soul. The material body of the indestructible, the immeasurable, the eternal living entity is sure to come to an end, and therefore fight Descendant of me, descendant of the kings who come and who stand, lift yourself up and know that your body, which is made from the eternal, is mortal and will fall. And that is why you must fight. Neither he who thinks of the living entity, the slayer, nor he who thinks it's slain is in knowledge. For the self slays not, nor is slain. For the soul, there is neither birth nor death at any time. He has not come into being, and nor does he not come to be. It will not come into being, for he is unborn, eternal, and ever-existing, the primeval, the beginning. He is not slain when the body is slain. 
sun breathe. See and know what is known. Know not now, but know in all things. How can a person who knows that the soul is indestructible, eternal, unborn, and immutable, kill anyone or cause anyone to kill? As a person puts on new garments, giving up no new ones, the soul too accepts new bodies, giving up the old bodies and useless ones. Changing in forms, the soul can never be cut into pieces by any weapon, nor burned by fire, moistened by water, nor withered by the wind. You know this, my son, as you are one of the wise and have seen and watched. Why this indivisible soul is breaking, insoluble, it can neither be burned nor dried. It is everlasting and present in all things, unchanging, immovable, and eternally the same. Why it is said that the soul is invisible, inconceivable, and immutable. Knowing this, you shouldn't grieve for the body, nor for those who those bodies dwell. If, however, you do think that the soul, or that symptom of life, will always be born and die forever, you still then have no reason to lament. Surely, if you believe in that cycle which comes and goes as it is given, then what fear is there? For one who has taken his birth is guaranteed to die, and after death, guaranteed to take your birth once more. Therefore, in the unavoidable discharge of your duty, in the unavoidable challenge of what you must do, do not lament. Do not fear, my son. All created things are made in their beginning, manifest in the state that they will be found, and unmade and destroyed. So why do you lament? For all things that come must be undone, must go from this place. Some look upon the soul as amazing, and some describe him as amazing, and hear of it as amazing, while others, even after hearing about such things, cannot understand them. The descendants of light, those who dwell in the body, can never be slain. Therefore, you do not need to grieve, grieve for any living thing, for all living things are children of this light. Considering your specific duty as a guardian, as a keeper of this kingdom, you should know that there is no better engagement for you than the fighting of religious principles. So there is no need for hesitation. For when you fight for what you believe, for what you have been put in position, over position to defend and to guard, what do you need fear? Happy are those who this fighting is found to become unsought for opening them the doors of the heavenly way. Give not to the obligations which you would seek to change, but to the obligations which you have sworn your oath. If you do not perform in your duty the duty which you have assigned yourself, which you have positioned yourself upon, then you will lose your reputation. To throw down your weapon and be known as a great fighter will surely name you in disrespect and name you in dishonor. People will speak of your infamy. For a respectable person, dishonor is worse than death. The great generals who have highly esteemed your name and fame, well, they will think that you left the battlefield out of fear alone, and they will consider you insignificant. Though this will not be your truth, though you threw down for valiant purpose, this will not be seen. Your enemies will describe you in many unkind words and scorn your ability. And tell me, what would be more painful to you? To have all that your life has served be thrown and cast to the mud because you did not stand in action in the place you were called to be? or to allow the emotional movement in which you felt sweep it away. 
Do you fight for the sake of fighting? Was Would you raise your bow just to raise it? Would you loose the arrow to see only where it lands? No, you do so in obligation, in belief, in service to your king. I have described this knowledge to you through analytical study, through the things that have been seen and known, not felt in my heart, but known. Known in the world over. I will give it to you in terms with working without results that give to you. When you act in such a way, you will free yourself from the bondage of the work, bondage of having to continue in such a cycle. Act wholly in this place, and I will not call you again to it. In this endeavor, there is no loss nor diminution. In little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. Those who are on this path are resolute in their purpose, and their aim is one. Child of love, the intelligence of those is irresolute in the many branched. Those who seek and know their purpose follow it fully. They do not question this space, for every step that is led is led wholly. Men of sm- small knowledge are very much attached to the flowery words of the Vedas. Why, they recommend attaching oneself to this and to that for the results of good birth and power. And to be honest, it's not true. It's not needed, for the purpose is called for you to be where I have placed you. Be where you are called to be. This is your purpose. Why, all of the law and the things that you have experienced in your life that everyone calls to be their law, their rule, their Veda, that is for them. They deal with the life that is found in three modes. Three states. But this is not the state of me, nor the state of you who I call to be like me. All purposes served by a small well can at once be served by a great reservoir of water. Similarly, all purposes of the Vedas can be served to one who knows the purpose behind them. You have a right to perform your prescribed duty, but you are not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself the cause or the result of your activities and never be attached to not doing your duty. Perform your duty unequosed, O Arjuna, abandoning all attachments to success or failure. Do it regardless of where you will end up. Do it because I've called you to do it. Keep all abominable activities far distant in your work to this act. In that the conscious surrender to Lord, to now, to the space I have placed you, being present in here, allowing you to take fruit in this place. Why a man engaged in devotional service, you who serve your king, who serves the space of which you are placed, rids yourself of both good and bad reactions in this life. Therefore, strive for yoga. Strive for balance in the art of all work. By engaging in devotional service to Lord, to self, to the path that is called, you elevate, lift yourself from the material world. In this way, you free yourself from the cycle of birth and death and attain the state beyond all miseries, going back to the beginning, sitting beside me in the place of all beginning. 
When you and your intelligence has passed from the dense forest of delusion, you shall become indifferent to all that has been heard and all that is to be heard. When your mind is no longer disturbed by the flowery language of the Vedas in the world around you, when it remains fixed on the trance of self-realization, then you will have attained the divine consciousness. In all of this wisdom, Arjuna looked, looked up at Krishna, his friend, his living light. And he said, well, how do I know? How do I know when my consciousness is merged in transcendence? How will I speak? What will my sound be? What will be the language which falls from me? How shall I sit and how shall I walk? And in this space, Krishna says, why when a man gives up all varieties of desire for self-gratification, when arise from all mental concoction and in his mind thus purified finds satisfaction in self alone, then he is said to be in the state of pure transcendental, transcendent consciousness. One who is not disturbed in the mind even amidst the threefold miseries or elated through happiness. One who is free from attachment, from fear and anger is called the sage of the steady mind. In the material world, one who is unaffected by whatever good or evil he may obtain, neither praising it nor despising it, is firmly fixed in perfect knowledge. Why, one who is able to withdraw his senses from sense objects as the tortoise draws his limbs within the shell, is firmly fixed in perfect consciousness. Why, though embodied soul may be restricted from a sense of enjoyment, the taste for the sense object remains. But ceasing such engagements by experiencing a higher taste, he is fixed in a consciousness. The senses are so strong and impetuous, Arjuna, that they are carried forcibly away from the mind, taking a man of discernment and endeavoring to control them. Why, one who is able to hold back his senses, keeping them under full control, fixing his consciousness upon me, is a known man of steady mind. When contemplating the objects of the senses, a person develops an attachment for them. When you think about the things that taste well, you want them, you long for them. And in this space, lust arrives. You want, and as you want, you realize that you cannot have. Anger arrives. And from this anger, complete delusion follows. Delusion leads to bewilderment of memory, and you do not remember what was. And in the loss of this memory, intelligence is lost. Intelligence is lost, and down we go into the well of the earth. Down we go into the well of the material. But a person who becomes free from all of this attachment, able to control their senses through the regulative principles of freedom, is able to obtain the complete mercy of Lord. One who is not connected with the Supreme can neither ever have transcendent knowledge or intelligence, nor be in a place of peace. Why, how could there be any happiness without peace? For if you are satisfied, even the threefold miseries of existence can no longer hold you. In the satisfied consciousness, your intelligence will become well found. As strong minds sweep away, as strong winds sweep away boats upon the water, 
even one of roaming senses, the mind will focus and can carry away a man of intelligence. Think truly to how your mind, your thought, your logic dictates where you go. How in the deepest of places and throes of meditation, your mind can call you away. Therefore, you who have been given the wisdom, the understanding, the clarity to know and to see, hold fast. What is night for all beings is the time of awakening for the self-controlled. The time of awakening for all beings is the night of the introspective sage. Why a person who is not disturbed by the incandescent flows of desire that enter like a river into the ocean, which is ever being filled but is always still, why they alone can achieve peace and not the man who strives to satisfy such desires. Follow the things that you feel to their source, to their ocean, and understand the wholeness of the body, not the roaring rapids of the moment. Why a person who has given up all desire for sense gratification, who lives free from the desires of the body, and who has given up the sense of proprietorship and devoid of false ego, why he alone can attain real peace. This is the way of the spiritual and the godly life, ever attaining that which man is not bewildered by. If one is so situated, even at the hour of death, then you enter the kingdom of God. And this is true. Forever must you be, my son, my child, beside me, as you always are and will be. Called in your mind, there must be wisdom, there must be peace. For in peace, even at the hour of death, you will come back and arrive by my side. But in chaos and in confusion, you will fall again to the earth to be born and pulled through the cycles of the dirt. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a wonderful first reading of the Bhagavad Gita. I thank you for your time. I thank you for enjoying and being patient through the stumbles and stutters in our first reading. My mind and body is buzzing and personally vibrating. I know it's a little too late to offer this, and I'll make sure to put it in the beginning of the next one, but so you have it. Know that these readings can often and at times be shifting of one's consciousness. And in this space, it is encouraged that you should not be driving or operating any heavy machinery, but be sitting your beautiful self down and listening to these sweet nothings and journeying with us into a new space. Bless you, my family, those who listen and find these words, and I look forward to the next time, the next opportunity to record the continuance of that. In the book, for those of you who followed and made it, we are stopping on the chapter three, that is Karma Yoga. We continued burning through that space. That was zero. Starting from the introduction, which we, we glossed over briefly, we stopped at page 130, chapter three, Karma Yoga is where we will continue next. With that, be blessed, my beautiful witches and friends. This has been a wonderful